When I was a kid, we'd go camping in the woods and sit around the fire after dark and tell scary stories about ghosts and witches and Bigfoot and whatever malevolence might be lurking out there in the dark just past the edge of the firelight. Nowadays, we gather around and terrify each other with medical bill horror stories. That time my wife needed her gallbladder out and spent five years paying off the bill. $12,000. The three days I spent in the hospital after a vertigo attack caused me to swoon like a little girl, wet myself, and fall down. $19,000. My friend whose sister had her baby early and had to spend three weeks with her newborn in the neonatal ICU. $830,000. I'd rather take my chances with Bigfoot. Is the American healthcare system scarier than a mythical giant woodland creature? The dogs might not think so, but we'll dig in on this episode of I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News. I don't take risks with my healthcare coverage any more than I drive without car insurance or leave the dogs unsupervised for too long. The chances of me being in a car accident are pretty good, and the odds that the dogs will swallow my socks or reprogram all the TV remotes is nearly 100%. It is inevitable that I will get sick, and even more likely that I will get hurt, especially out in the yard cutting down trees or trying to light the grill without adult supervision. I spend more money on health insurance and out-of-pocket medical expenses than I do on my mortgage, like quite a lot of Americans do. My health care expenditures could buy a house. They can't seem to buy health care, though, and I actually get to live in my house. I have one of those policies you probably have or know about. I have to spend about $8,000 a year out of pocket toward my deductible before my insurance company will chip in a dime. Depending on what kind of life-saving measures I need or which health care network I use to get them, they may only pay for part of it. Between my premiums and my out-of-pocket requirements, I need to spend about $15,000 a year on my health care before my insurance company will help out. In the meantime, the only thing they do is discount the bills I get from my hospital or pharmacy. I go to the doctor. He tells me my arm hurts because I eat too much Belgian chocolate. I pay a $25 copay, and he sends my insurance carrier a bill for 100 bucks. They knock $40 off the top. I pay the rest, and my doctor takes the 40 in a tax deduction which, as a taxpayer, I also kind of pay for. Podcasting may not have been the best career choice. What I should have done was go into the health insurance business. Those guys have it made. Let's pretend I make $100,000 a year. I pretend that all the time. I spend 1.45% of that, and my employer matches it, on Medicare. Don't worry, I don't get to use that either. Yet. I spend 6.2% also matched by my employer on Social Security, which I also don't get to use yet. I give another 20-30% to 30 or so to local, state, and federal governments to send someone out when my house catches fire, pave the roads, and establish a robust national defense. My annual take-home pay in this fantasy is about $62,000. In a year where I swoon and fall down or need monthly thyroid pills, I spend 15% or so of my pay on health insurance and health care. In a year in which I don't go to the doctor, it's about 8%. My wife has a similarly arranged health care plan through her work that costs about $3,000 a year while not paying for her prescriptions or her quarterly checkups with her endocrinologist until she reaches the magic out-of-pocket threshold of about $5,000. Well, that sounds both reasonable and affordable. 
except it's not. So a lot of Americans skip all that and pay as much as they can afford out of pocket and go into payment plans or collections for the rest. Some pay nothing at all. But everyone gets sick sooner or later, and doctors aren't really allowed to send you home untreated to die. Doctors and hospitals just write off all those overinflated and unpaid medical bills, which deprives our anemic federal treasury of revenue. They do employ a full-time staff whose only job is to spend all day on the phone with health insurance companies, fighting to get paid the 60% they were promised 60 days ago. The doctors and hospitals write the expense of that off, too. Our poor, anemic federal treasury. It probably can't even afford iron pills. How did we get here? My congressman tells me this entire situation is the fault of that president who is not of his party. My senator tells me it's my congressman's fault for not proposing any alternative to a for-profit company deciding whether they should spend their profits on paying my medical bills. The president tells me it's both their faults. And anyway, we have bigger problems now, like immigration, gun rights, and abortion. The president scolds me for my self-obsession and moves on to something that matters, like how most Americans won't be able to afford their retirement. Healthcare is tremendously expensive, he says, so I'll just have to deal with it and pay what I can afford for as long as I can before rolling on up into bankruptcy court. Interesting. Immigrants receiving free health care, covered mental health services, medical care necessary for gunshot victims, and affordable prenatal and pediatric care would be germane to all those things he just listed and might go a long way toward making retirement affordable since health care expenses go up as we age. But, oh well, he's gone now. My nephew was telling me a story about that time he needed an MRI for a golf or bourbon-related injury. Here we go, I thought. Another horror story, this time with a super expensive diagnostic machine playing the part of the monster. He went to his local diagnostic facility and asked the nurse how much the MRI would cost. She didn't get that question very often, but told him, after checking his insurance, that it would be about $1,200. With a 40% discount his insurance company was going to give him by just changing the amount of the bill, he figured he'd have to pay about $800 for his MRI. What's the price if I pay cash right now, he asked. I was horrified. You were at a medical office, for God's sake, not a fish market. Were you seriously haggling over the price? My wife raised one eyebrow, which was her silent signal to me that I should restrain my tendency toward hyperbolic exasperation long enough to learn something new. Married couples have a secret language all their own. What do you think the going cash price is these days for an MRI, my nephew asked. Two grand, I said. That's what mine cost that one time where I got dizzy wet myself and swooned like a little girl. Four hundred bucks, he replied. Wait, what? This episode is brought to you by the bladder surgery of President James K. Polk. Before he was Speaker of the House, Governor of Tennessee, 11th President of the United States, and one of America's most successful and ambitious real estate agents, being the leader who acquired California, Nevada, Texas, and Utah, along with parts of Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, and New Mexico for the United States, a young Jimmy Polk was in constant pain from bladder stones that made it almost impossible for him to concentrate on anything, including his schoolwork. 
Fed up with this, his father was taking him from Tennessee to North Carolina for treatment when the pain got so bad they detoured to Danville, Kentucky, which was home to Dr. Ephraim McDowell, a pioneer of surgical methods often considered a founding father of abdominal surgery. Little Jimmy was stripped naked from the waist down, placed on all fours, and secured in place by straps and a couple of burly assistants. He was given some brandy, since anesthetic hadn't been, oh you know, a thing prior to the development of this surgical method. Which, by the way, involved cutting into Jimmy's perineum with a knife, followed by the insertion of a horrific, sharp, needle-like instrument called a gorget. The cutting continued through his prostate into his bladder, where the stones were then scooped out with forceps. The whole procedure took about a half hour, followed by six weeks of recovery. After this, James K. Polk was able to focus on his education, eventually get elected to various offices, and snag most of the western United States from Mexico. He was not, however, able to father any children, and by all reports, never drank brandy again, which I think we can all understand. The nurse told my nephew that they would bill the insurance company $1,200 for his 10 minutes inside the MRI machine. The insurance people would knock 40% right off the top, which meant they're now looking at $720. The diagnostic center would have their full-time insurance biller send the invoice for payment. 30 days later, they would send a reminder. And 30 days after that. They might get a check 30 days after that. If my nephew was willing to skip all that paperwork and personnel time and the interest on the diagnostic center's line of credit from the bank they needed to pay their bills on time while waiting for insurance companies to pay them late, they would happily do it for 400 bucks. Which means, if you have your calculator out, that healthcare in this country comes with a 300% markup. I'm not good at math, which is definitely not the fault of America's educational system. They tried their best. They really did. So I'm going to have to use fake round numbers for illustrative purposes and make some broad statements that may not be fully based in fact, which my wife has told me I should stop doing at least 44 quintillion times. Or I can do some quick research. Let's do that. Credibility sounds like an exciting change of pace. Healthcare in America is expensive. Most things that have their prices inflated three times above reasonable cost are. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said that national health care expenses reached $3.8 trillion in 2019. I'm sure it's gone up since then. The 2019 number had gone up about 5% from the year before. So at 5% a year, it's not unreasonable to put national health care expenditures for 2021 at a nice round $4 trillion. Let's say 40% of the inflated cost gets deducted by whoever has responsibility to pay for it, so the United States Treasury is deprived of the tax revenue on that. 40% of $4 trillion is $1.6 trillion, and at a corporate tax rate of 20%, the U.S. just lost $320 billion in revenue. With which we could have bought some really nice aircraft carriers and paved highways, or conquered Belgium. For the remaining $2.4 trillion, the results are murky at best. Medicare paid about $875 billion of that out of the money you and your employer sent in, which leaves about $1.5 trillion. Some sources say that 60% of Americans have medical debt, and the average unpaid amount is about $6,000. Add that up, and you're at a trillion dollars. So let's assume for convenience that half a trillion gets paid and a trillion goes to collection or bankruptcy. The American Journal of Public Health reports that medical bankruptcies represent 66.5% of all personal bankruptcies. 
20% of medical bankruptcies are filed by people over the age of 55, and 20% are filed by military families. There are over a quarter million crowdfunding campaigns like GoFundMe each year for medical bills. 90% of these fail to reach their goal. If that's bringing you down, Bigfoot is still out there in the woods, waiting for you to come give him a hug. But the scariest statistic of all is that only 7% of Americans believe healthcare is a pressing national issue, which means that no one running for office is going to address it while campaigning, other than to remind you that medical care is a huge problem, and that it's the fault of the candidate or party they are running against. What they won't say is that they'll do something to fix it, because they don't have to. The Democrats won't run the risk of criticizing Obamacare, which was supposed to fix this once and for all and didn't even come close. The most courageous among them will say that while Obamacare wasn't perfect, the Republicans have never proposed an effective alternative. The Republicans get to blame Obamacare. Both parties are off the hook for whatever your problem is with your medical bills. So what do we do about it? If you own the American Congress and could get them to pass any laws you wanted, what law could you write to address the major issues with the way we buy and sell health in this country? If you pay for your health care through a company-sponsored insurance plan or one you've bought yourself, you spend about 8% of your income on not getting sick, and 15% more or more if you do. At the same time, you pay another 1.45% for Medicare. My fuzzy math, based on extrapolating Social Security payments into the trust fund, says that the taxable U.S. payroll was about $8 trillion in 2021. In order to fund American healthcare expenses at what my nephew would call the cash price of a trillion dollars a year, we'd have to tax everyone who gets a paycheck 12%. We're already paying about 1.5% into Medicare, so it would be about 10%. Still pretty high. It's a better deal than I'm currently getting with my own healthcare plan, so I might be inclined to go for it. But what about folks who don't have health insurance, or those who can't afford another 10% of their paycheck gone into the gaping maw of tax collection? With the national debt at $30 trillion, this doesn't seem like something the Treasury can pay for either, and still have enough money left over to conquer Belgium and make them quit with the waffles. There would be an upside to every American citizen having their medical bills paid on time. We have the technology for your doctor to tell you to stop eating so many Belgian waffles, submit a bill co-signed by you to the National Fund, and have the money in his account by the next morning. If doctors and hospitals and pharmacies knew they would get their money by tomorrow, prices would drop. There would be a boom in America's medical industry, which would replace all those lost jobs at health insurance and medical billing companies. More people would go to the doctor when they were sick, which would forestall longer periods of illness due to not getting treated early. Workers would be more productive. Retirement wouldn't mean having to go back to work. Fewer Americans would die. There are lots of upsides. All we have to do is figure out how to pay for it. This is where we run into what I like to call America's big problem. The country is broken in debt. It doesn't bring in enough money to pay its bills, but Congress and the President spend like teenagers who found their mom's credit card while she was out of town. Rich people are finding it cheaper to buy senators than to pay taxes, but quite a lot of the richest people in the country have said they would have no problem paying more taxes if they could be sure their money would be spent responsibly. I'm sure most of us, who don't get to decide how much we pay in taxes, would agree with that. As this show continues on, we're going to discover that every problem facing the nation is complex and interconnected with another one. If we're smart and lucky, and don't get distracted with Belgian conquest, 
we might just drill down to a root cause, which would be the first step in solving it. But nothing of this magnitude will get fixed in one election cycle or two or four, which means that most of our elected officials, the ones who can only see things in terms of one election cycle or two or four, aren't even going to try. Imagine running for office and telling this generation of Americans and the business community that their taxes are going to go up and stay there until their grandchildren are middle-aged so that we can eliminate the national debt, fix things like how we pay for healthcare roads and battleships, and get America's proverbial car out of the proverbial ditch. That it might take 50 years. I think most Americans would say, okay then, if that's what we have to do, let's do it. We're used to the long haul, 13 years to get a diploma, four years for a college degree and 20 more to pay the bill, 30 years to pay off a house, eight years to beat the British, five years to beat Hitler, 40 years to bring down the Soviet Union. We bought war bonds and went without rubber and meat to win the war. Our grandparents paid huge income tax rates to build the interstate highways and put American footprints on the moon. We're used to long-term deprivation for the eventuality of a reward. We've done it before. But cowardly politicians don't like being the voice of doom. That's precisely the kind of thing that sends them back home to play golf with Phil from the hardware store while watching their replacement on TV tell us that the only problem the country really has is the agenda of the other side. Whatever it is. Time for you to weigh in. If you have a solution for America's healthcare nightmare or any hard evidence for the existence or current whereabouts of Bigfoot, I'd love to hear it. Post something on the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News Facebook page, even if it's a picture of your own long-suffering pets. If you think the conquest of Belgium is neither inevitable nor necessary, you can Twitter to at NotAlloudPod. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to Not Allowed to Watch the News. Support comes from the Drinks with Great Minds and History podcast. Every episode tackles one of history's great minds, like George Washington, Abe Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Thurgood Marshall, and Queen Isabella. You'll learn things you never knew about these historical figures as they get rated on a scale of greatness. And you'll learn about the beers and cocktails that go best with your typical despotic overlord. Check out podcast.notalloweddtowatchthenews.com for drinks with great minds and history and where to find them.